Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special review of a movie called Inside Lewin Davis. Now, I do have a couple of special guests with me today. Um, Corbin is not here to record this. He is off getting married at this point. Um, So these two guests, one of them actually has been on this podcast before. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Tom. Hi, Tom. So Tom was on a podcast with us for Jurassic Park. Um, And as if you listen to that podcast, you may recall that he is a music composer. And he was able to give us a little bit of insight to some of the music um, that went into Jurassic Park, which we know is pretty famous uh, in today by today's standards. Now, our next guest is a new person to the podcast. Um, and would you like to introduce yourself? I am Andrew. Hi. So Andrew is my brother. Uh, he he came to he went to college originally for computer engineering, but then switched over to film studies because he couldn't stand it at all. Also because I couldn't pass calculus. That's yes, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, Andrew is in college for film studies. He's a senior. He's about to graduate and he specializes more with the cinematography side of it. Um, He he and I have been big in the film for the last few years, but he has definitely, I'd say, overtaken me when it comes to cinematography because he actually has his own camera, which I do not. So anyways, I brought these two on mostly because, as I said, Tommy is the film composer or a uh, he's a composition major. So he would be able to give us a little bit of insight on the scores and the music for this, for this movie. And Andrew will be able to give us a little insight to the shots of this movie. Um, and for a movie like Inside Lewin Davis, I figured that both of those are pretty important. It was one where all three of our strengths could come together and we could review a film. So just to get a little bit of background about Inside Lewin Davis before we hop into it. It was released limitedly on December 6th and got a wider release on December 20th. Its budget was $11 million. This is all. This is also a film done by the Coen brothers. Um, they're pretty big in, in Hollywood. They do some indie stuff. They most recently did Inside uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs um, that got a couple Oscars that made it to the Oscars. So... Um, a bit more background here. Budget of 11 million. Opening weekend, it garnered in a small, but still kind of, I guess, strong for an independent film, $405,411. Now that was probably taken when it was originally released with its, uh, with its, with its limited theaters that it, was, that it was sent to. But overall, domestically, it did get back 13.2 million. Foreign markets got 19.7 million with a worldwide total of 32.9 million. So overall, it did all right. Um, just to kind of give a little bit of context, the, in 2013, which is the year this, that this was released, Frozen was a movie that was released, Iron Man 3, Despicable Me, Hobbit, Desolation of Smog, The Fury, Fast and Furious 6, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Thor The Dark World were all films that were released in 2013. So when it came out, week number one, it released back in number 19, um, which again, this is during its limited run. Frozen was in the theater at number one that had been in for three weeks. Hunger Games Catching Fire also in for three weeks. Out of the Furnace at number three had been in, had opened at its first week um, when this came out. Thor the Dark World has been in for five weeks. Delivery Man in for five weeks and Homefront in for two weeks. Its second week, it stayed at number 19 
Isolation is Smog have released this week, and Tyler Perry's on Media Christmas released also this week. Week number 11 looks to be the week that it got its wider release, so it bumped up to number 11. And this is when the long-awaited sequel to Anchorman had come out, and it came out at number two. Um, and then week number four went down to number 16. So just a little bit of, just to get some scores. IMDb has it at a 7.9, a very respectable 7.9. A meta score at a very surprising uh, 93. Rotten Tomatoes at a 92% critic score and 74% audience score. There was no cinema score for this. Um, again, this is an independent independent film, so that's probably why. But it does have a letterbox score of a 4.0 out of 5. So overall, these scores do look to be very, very high all across the board. The Rotten Tomatoes audience score looks a little bit low, but all things considered, a very well-loved movie from those who have seen it. Okay, listeners, well, we're just about to get into spoilers here. So if you haven't watched Inside Lewin Davis, I, which I highly suggest that you do, uh, go ahead and pause the podcast. You can watch it. And I think it's on Amazon Prime. I think that's where I found it. I think that's where I think we all had seen it originally, um, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, go ahead and pause it. It's free on there. If you have a Prime subscription, you can watch it. And of course, we'll be back. Uh, we'll be here waiting for you to come back and listen to. The year is 1961, and Lewin Davis is a struggling musician in New York, spending his nights in friends' homes since he doesn't have one to call his own. With the recent death of his partner, Lewin has recorded a new album titled Inside Lewin Davis to hopefully get him on his feet. Unfortunately, his album is not sung very well. Jean, a fling of Lewin's, reveals that she's pregnant with either his or her boyfriend's child. And to top it off, Lewin loses the girlfriend's cat, which he accidentally lets out when he goes to leave early that week. Lewin gets a little money when he gets a recording gig with Jim, Jean's boyfriend, and uses it to hopefully pay for Jean's abortion. But he finds out that his previous love, named Diane, didn't go through the operation and moved back home with her parents. Lewin hears about a couple of guys headed to Chicago, and Lewin hops out a car with jazz pianist Mr. Turner and his chauffeur, Johnny Five. With the trio nearing Chicago, the policeman pulls up behind our boys after Johnny had pulled over on the side of the highway to get some sleep. The officer and Johnny get into a tussle, ending with Johnny getting arrested, leaving Lewin and Mr. Turner without the ignition keys. Lewin abandons Mr. Turner and hitchhikes the rest of the way to Chicago and visits Bud Grossman, owner of the Gate of Horn, hoping to get a record deal. Get back together with your partner, he tells Lewin, sending him back to New York. Lewin uses the money that he has left to rejoin the merchant union, but finds that the documents he needs were thrown out by his sister. Lewin visits the gaslight where Poppy, the owner of the gaslight, reveals that Jean had also slept with him to get a gig there. A drunken Lewin then starts making fun of the lady on stage and gets kicked out of the gaslight. Lewin returns the next day to sing. After his set is done, Poppy tells him that his friend is out back. Turns out this is the husband of last night's act. He beats up Lewin and hails a cab. Lewin watches the man exit and remarks au revoir as credits roll. All right, well, let's go ahead and start off with just the opening scene alone, because when you watch it all the way through, this opening scene um, is actually the ending of the film. It, the day before this happens, just a good bit of context again, um, Lewin made fun of a lady who was on stage. And then after he's done performing, he goes, uh, the guy who runs the, the gaslight, um, Poppy, he says, Hey, your friend's out back. Uh, Lewin goes out to talk to him and he beats him up. And then we transition into, I guess like I was about a, what is this a week into the man's life? Yeah. So we transition back to a week before that. Um, so yeah, this is like, this is interesting because this is the introduction to our character, right? Our introduction to, uh, to Lewin. He's getting beat up in the alleyway after performing at the gaslight. Uh, it's clear that, I mean, well, uh, what's clear at least to me is that, you know, this opening is showing this man, he, 
he's performing at a place, you know, he, his life, he's definitely pursuing this as his career, right? But it also seems to be that it's something that, you know, he doesn't get a whole lot of revenue stream out of, right? It, it's, at least it seems to look like uh, Lewin is, at least in this moment when we meet him, he's kind of down on his luck trying to get by uh, by playing at the Gaslight or other venues, trying to make it big, um, but seems like it's not going the way that he would like it to go. So, okay, so what are you guys? What are you guys' thoughts on the opening of this film? Because again, like I said, this is the introduction to our main character. It's, I would say, an interesting introduction because it doesn't exactly show our main character in the best light, right? It's showing him, like I mentioned, kind of down on his luck. So as Alan was talking about, when we were first introduced to this film, we're actually in, we're actually thrown into an environment that is very calm and peaceful, but it's also a smoke-filled room. Like a lot of the entertainment uh, bars back then were like, so there's very soft light everywhere and very dark trailing off into it. And then a bunch of smoke filled. So like a lot of the audience shots, everyone was smoking, or at least there was some person in that shot that was smoking and that just pushed the environment just a little bit more and a little bit more. And, but a lot of the, the one thing that I most noticed was when the camera was close in on Lewin Davis, it was flowing the way that he flows when he sang a song. When he's saying, hang me, oh, hang me. The camera was moving with him as he was playing his guitar, leaning in and out into his microphone. But when it was from a long shot from where the audience was sitting or standing, then it was a still on a tripod shot. So, we are given both what the audience see and what Lewin is focused in on. And then the depth of field for this whole movie kind of is usually very open. So like the F-stops, like not exaggerated, but at, at 32, it's like everything's in focus. But there are very few instances where the F-stop is um, closed in a way. Yeah, so now the song here is like Andrew mentioned, Hang Me, Oh Hang Me, I think it's the name of the song. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, Tom? Hang me, oh, hang me. You listen to the entire song at the very beginning of this of this film. Like you're you're there in the audience, pretty much watching Lewin Davis. Uh, you're you're pretty much one with the audience, and I and I like it. It caught me off guard when we were when we first watched it. What was it back in like 2017 or 18 when we first watched this in in our apartment? And I just remember sitting there, and even as a music lover myself, I'm just like, oh. I realized halfway through, wow, we're watching this entire performance. This is this is something else with uh, with a few cuts, like Andrew said, to the audience with the smoke filled room. I immediately could tell that the song was powerful and that it meant something and that it was going to be brought back later in the film. You don't know when, but you you know that this is this song has a deeper meaning, most likely to Lewin himself. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm looking, so I'm looking at the lyrics now. Um, and it kind of does set us up for the adventure that we're about to go on with Lewin, because as we mentioned, this is, this is actually a scene that happens at the end of his adventure. Um, it's showing us the very beginning. And the first verse goes like this. It says, hang me. Oh, hang me. I'll be dead and gone. Hang me. Oh, hang me. I'll be, I'll be dead and gone. Wouldn't mind the hanging, but lying in the grave. So long, poor boy. I've been all around this world. And then the next verse, um, Actually, I guess it's the chorus, but in the next, in the first verse, he does talk about, you know, I've been all around Cape Gardeau, parts of Arkansas, parts of Arkansas, you know, he's talking about the adventures that he's gone on, right? Um, and so I kind of see this opening song to be something where maybe it's, you know, his love for playing music 
is something that he's willing to give up, right? Maybe it's something that maybe he even feels trapped in it because it's the only thing that he can do. Um, we'll find out later in the story, you know, he tries to go to Chicago to find, you know, some kind of something there, which there is nothing there for him. He has to come back to New York. He tries to hop on a, what was it? A, he tries to get back into the Marines, um, but because he's lost important documents, it doesn't happen. So do you have any other thoughts on like these lyrics? Because I'm, from what I'm seeing here, it does kind of look to be the opening of the story about a man who is not really sure what to do in his life, right? He says he's been around. There doesn't seem to be anything more for me. Am I only stuck playing folk music for the rest of my life? It definitely is, as I see, a foreshadow to like a look into his life. Yes, it's uh, it's a song that we assume is written probably on his past and his adventures. And, uh, and you'll see in this film, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, th there doesn't seem to be much more to uh, his gigging and his music than j just barely scratching that surface. Also at the end, he looks at the Walt Disney's and the incredible journey, which is playing in movie theaters and he kind of just smirks at it. Right. And there, that should also be noted that there is a cat front and center on that poster as well. And cats are a pretty big uh, symbolic uh, link to this to Lewin as a character in the story. Um, Andrew, do you have any more thoughts on this? Just this opening song and uh, alone? Not really. Uh, after obviously, after the song is done, he does say, "If it's never new and never gets old, and it's a folk song," which right. is exactly what this movie is morphed into. Right. Then, yeah, we should also say this is set in the 19, what, 60s around that era. It's a 1961 Greenwich that's scene. It. Yeah, that's right. And this is heavy on folk music. Um, so heavy on folk music of the time. So, yeah, as we've noted, music, of course, is a very important part to the story. Um, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think mo most, if not all of the music that's in this film is all sung, right? I don't think there's like any like original composition uh, when it comes to musical score, right? Right. Every every time there are montages of him traveling to places, it is songs that he is basically singing. And uh, there is, n I don't think, a touch of uh, score with an orchestra at all throughout this entire film. It is all folk music, just backing up the scene by scenes. And uh, I personally love that. And every song that is played within the film most likely is played all the way out through the whole thing or is at least seemed like it. Um, Green Green Rocky Roads is the only exception to this where it's not played out all the way. It's just kind of played a verse and then the chorus and then they just kind of trail off. But the Queen Jane at the end is not, it's in, it's not in its full entirety, but it does seem like a full song that he did sing to, um, whatever his name is. I can't remember. Yeah. I think it's Bud, uh, I got Bud Grossman. That's oh, it. Yeah, yeah. Bud Grossman. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in that scene, he does go to Chicago and. Um, okay, that's that's before we get to that point in the story. Um, before we get to where he leaves and goes to Chicago, let's kind of back up and talk about some of what the movie does to get to that midpoint. Because once he goes to Chicago, that's like that's right in the middle of the movie. That that's the midpoint in the story where things kind of take a shift. And right? personally, my favorite part of the entire film, I think that entire, I think it lasts something like twenty minutes, maybe. That twenty minutes is pure genius writing to me and pure genius acting. I am glued every single time I'm watching the progression of those scenes. It's incredible. Right. And I think 
Yeah, so the, in, the, in the opening, um, we do get to see after his introductory to him playing at the Gaslight, getting beat up by whatever his name is, the husband of the lady who played the night before, um, we do have a like a small montage um, of him singing um, a song, and he's leaving a place that he technically doesn't actually own. Um, he's living with, he's just kind of staying the night at somebody's house that he just happens to know, and their cat gets out, right? And this becomes probably one of the biggest uh ideas of the story that kind of keeps coming back that 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 um thematic idea of the cat right and of course lewin catches it but he has to be somewhere so he can't exactly just bring the cat back oh that's right he gets locked out so he can't bring the cat back um and so he ends up dropping it off at somebody else's place somebody else that he also knows so this idea of the cat what do we think that it means? Because as I mentioned, it becomes a big point in the story. There's it forces introduced here. Eventually it gets away by hopping out the fire escape um, at Gene and Jim's house, Gene and Jim's apartment. Um, later on, he picks up the wrong cat to bring it back to the gold finds, which is what he was staying with earlier. Uh, he hits a cat in the car on the way back from Chicago. So cats, of course, are a big thing in the story. Obviously, hearkening to something about Lewin's character. What do we think that that means? Well, I definitely think that the Coen brothers put some symbolism to it. However, I did read a quote from one of them saying, the film doesn't really have a plot. That concerned us at one point. That's why we threw the cat in. Now, with the genius of the Coen brothers, um, adding that to the plot, yes, that was one thing, but there's definitely some symbolism that they probably added to that cat, which is... Very much up to, for debate. I know I've seen people talking about it uh, either on Reddit or different uh, film blogs and whatnot. But yeah, let's uh, let's actually talk about that cat, Andrew. What do you think? I love it. Tom just backed you up. He didn't really say. He didn't really answer your question. Uh, no, uh, that, uh, me and Alan talked before. A lot of the cat. Um, the way I saw it was his cat could represent his own dream of becoming a more of a musician a popular musician and one of the steps he does take is to go to bug grossman in chicago at the gate of horn to see if he can up the ante but uh a couple of things that i did notice about the cat is that the cat at the beginning is given the quote he lets the cat out of the bag which he lets the cat out of the gore finds apartment and that could be one of the thing like we are given the dream that lewin davis has is now out of the bag kind of because we're starting the film. That's one way of looking at it. And then when they're in the car taking the cat to when he's going to Chicago, the cat is sitting on his lap and it's mass matching the exact same uh, jacket that he's wearing. So the cat kind of blends in with what he's wearing also. And that has to go with colors. And I think we'll talk about that soon. Yes, we will talk about colors here in just a second. Um, but yeah, and I think I think you're I think you're I'm kind of on track with you because I kind of see the cat in a couple of different ways, right? I mentioned when you and I were, when we were talking about this the night before we were, we were doing this recording, kind of just brief thoughts on it. And I said that I think the cat, obviously cats can, there's a, you know, that myth that, you know, cats have nine lives, right? And I would say that I think that that might be played out here in some ways where the original Goldfinds cat does run off. Um, presumably it ends up dying or something. Uh, there is the cat, of course, that Lewin runs over in later on in the movie as well. Um, so I kind of see this maybe as the cat, somewhat of a symbol for Lewin's, uh, Lewin's occupation as a musician, right? And how he's kind of, the cat's kind of just constantly running away, picking up the wrong cat, right? It's, it's something that he's always trying to chase, it almost feels like. It's something he seems to not escape. 
Um, and so what I'm saying is, I guess what I what I mean to say is that when it comes to music, right, Lewin is it's something that he's always that he's good at, right? And he can't seem to really get rid of it, especially when he tries to. Um, when he when he tries to, he has to go hop on the marine boat and then he loses important documents. And so he has to go back to what he was doing before. So that was kind of what I had originally thought was, you know, maybe it's something that, you know, he tries to kill, but it never actually ends up dying in the end, right? And then now the, the more I think about it, well, I think that that might be true. I, I also think that it's something that he is constantly, like, it's something that it's always on his mind, right? So I think it the cat definitely has more of a symbol to um, that of his uh, musical side of him still. But I think it's also in a bit of a different light, not, not necessarily saying that, oh, you know, you can't kill, you know, what passion you have inside of you. More of, you know, it's something that is just always there, right? Even when he runs off and gets the wrong cat, it's always some version of the same breed of cat, right? Like an orange tabby, I believe, is the kind of cat that he has. <laughs> So, I mean, and of course, the, the front cover of the standard Blu-ray case that you get is Lewin carrying the cat that's uh, shot from the opening. So I kind of see it again as maybe a, a symbolic, um, what's the word, manifestation of his talent and of his love for music. Even at the end of the story, he might not feel like he loves it. It's still something that he does have a lot of passion in. Now, here, here is a question. Why not another animal? Why not a dog or a lobster? Why did they? Why did the Coen brothers choose a cat to get rid of it? Right, and I think that partially is because um, I think this all starts with the gold finds cat, right? The gold finds cat we find at the end of the story comes back home to where it originally had come from. Even though Lewin had technically lost it, it jumped out the fire escape. It does go back to the gold finds house, and so I kind of see the cat as an adventure of Lewin trying to find some place to call home, right? He doesn't feel like, especially at the midpoint in the story, uh, that New York is any place for home for him because he screwed everything up and he wants to leave. Um, that's why I read his adventure to, to Chicago. So maybe it's his drive to find a place called home, right? While like the gold finds cat, he it does, you know, scoop, it does run out from the apartment, from the gold finds apartment, but it eventually does find its way home after the long adventure with Lewin. So maybe that's, I mean, I guess that's a better way of putting what I think the cat represents is Lewin's drive to find a place that he feels comfortable going home. And we can, no, we talked about this too yesterday, all the places he does sleep as well, the similarities between them. Yeah, I feel like it was funny that you brought up, like he's trying to find a place that he can call home, but all places that he sleeps at is he already makes it his home he sleeps on a couch that's next to a coffee table that has a lamp on it and then there's a window and it's always in a corner of like the living room or something like that and the two places that he brings the cat to which is al cody's apartment and jim and jean's apartment he feeds it milk and it's not his milk so wherever he goes he kind of makes himself at home Whereas also in the beginning shot, we have him eating, uh, making himself eggs at the Gorefine's house and walking around in his boxers and, and just listening to the records and then writing them a note and then leaving. So it's kind of like everywhere that he goes, yes, he's trying to find a place that he can call home, but he kind of is already there with the people that he crashes or the houses that he crashes at. Right, right. So that kind of makes me wonder if... Um, so okay, this this talk about uh, the the events leading up to his departure from Chicago or departure from New York going into to go, to go to Chicago, right? He does hear from I believe it's from Tony the the 
soldier who came to to uh, to perform at the gaslight. He does bring up that you know, yeah, I know a guy who was going to Chicago soon or whatever. Uh, I think it I, is it mentioned by Al Cody as well. I think it's only brought up by Al Cody. I thought it was I don't brought know, up. No, no, no. I think uh, the army dude talks about meeting at the Gate of Horn. He went to the Gate of Horn to play for Buck Grossman. That's right. But he never talks about going. It's Al Cody that brings up saying, oh, you don't want to go to Chicago? Well, this car is going to Chicago. That's Tuesday. right. Or something along those lines. That's right. The army man, what was his name? We were saying Troy. Troy. Troy? Yeah, that sounds about right. Troy, yeah, talked about how he was almost done with his... Uh, his time in the, uh, I believe the Navy or the army, wherever he was from. And he was picked up because, uh, Bud saw potential in him. So that's what kind of sparked that, uh, that realization for, uh, Lewin. Right. So that's, I'm just going to do a kind of a brief rundown of the events leading up to the midpoint in the story. Um, Gene, one of the per people that he's staying with the apartments that he's staying in, um, Jean is pregnant. That's in fact, when we're introduced to her character, she writes Lewin a note and hands it to him that says, I'm pregnant on it. Um, we find out that they had sleep been sleeping together, most likely to get into the gaslight um, for Lewin, um, because that becomes a pretty big point in the story later on. Uh, again, he loses the gold finds cat, and he does go back to their house, uh, thinking he found the gold finds cat, only to find out that that's not the case, um, and that when he was asked to play a song for them, um, I forget her name, but their wife of the gold finds, she starts to harmonize between him and his partner's song, and he th that kind of sets him off, and so he kind of leaves sour. Um, and see what else happens during that, like during the first half of the story. They go to the they go to the gaslight, and Justin Timberlake, who uh, plays as Gene or Jim, excuse me, and then Carrie Mulligan, who plays as Gene, is singing with Troy. They're, the, they're doing a trio of 100 miles, and um, I want to take a second to actually talk about this scene. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, this is um, just I just want to say that this is one of the most, this, in my opinion, is the most beautiful song on the entire soundtrack of this of this film. Holy cow. Like, we we as a family enjoy this song. Like, we'll be playing in the car to and from, and uh, we'll be all doing it and harmonizing it, and I just, I just love that song, and I love the... I just love the scene uh, where he's sitting there and he's talking to Jim and Gene and then uh, Jim and Gene go up there with Troy and they, they do the, they do the song. And I even put the, I caught something that Gene looks at him when she sings the lines, Lord, I can't go back home this away. Uh, and you see like Lewin put his hands up, like what, what are you, what are you looking at me for? And she just gives this soft little look, like this soft little sarcastic look, like, Lord, I can't go back home this away. Now, does she look at him intentionally that has to fall into those lines? Or did she just kind of say like, hey, look at me and I'm performing. You're not. I'm doing better than you are. And he's just kind of fed up with just kind of like her attack on him because you can you can see she attacks him a lot verbally yeah. during this during this film like she is so angry with him for their their past relationship uh even if if, if there was one or not i don't know if that was like a one time thing they did and because of that like all these mistakes were happening but she does not fancy lewin and she just she just verbally attacks him you know saying f you all this kind of stuff like everything you touch turns to crap because 
or, or like, like King Midas's idiot brother. Like that is a one line that I, I pick up from her every single time. I love it. But man, that, that, that line. And then that scene with a hundred miles, like I, I find it beautiful. I like that scene. Uh, and, and anything you guys think about that, that, about that song. So I think this is the one of the first ones, but there are three songs that are um, throughout the film that are where the camera pushes in on two different characters. Uh, this is one of the first ones in 500 Miles where it's between Gene and Lewin Davis. And the camera doesn't really push in on Lewin as much. It more pushes in on Gene. It starts with the trio, Troy, Gene, and Jim, and then it starts to push out Gene and Jim and stay, or yeah, whatever. It zooms in... Uh, slowly on gene and then when the zoom is about finished gene does look at lewin and then, then they have that interaction and then the other two that it happens with is when they finally meet bug grossman and he sings uh death of queen jane i'm getting ahead of myself because we haven't gotten to well, Chicago, that, and that's fine i'm not saying we have to follow the film in a linear structure but we can jump around i'm just saying that you know i want to talk about like i, I do want to talk about like the, the transition from one half to the second half a little bit late and a little bit but no, it's fine to jump around. All right. So when they go, when Lewin goes to Chicago and he meets up with Bud Grossman is another um, song that does this whole camera push when he's singing a song. So Lewin is singing Death of Queen Jane and Bud Grossman is just sitting there watching. Now, there are, the whole thing is pushing in mostly on Lewin for like the whole first verse. And then it cuts to Bud Grossman and starts painting and zooming in on him. And then it finally ends the song and the cameras both stop. But in that scene, both of the characters are in two different lighting. Um, Lewin is in soft light, whereas Bud Grossman is more of in a harsh light, which kind of gives off their character in that moment. Lewin definitely changes how his character is presented in this whole in that whole scene. And when he's at Chicago, he's more of a uh, lighthearted kind of he's more of a lighthearted kind of dude who kind of just like ha ha here's a little joke ha ha, which is not his character when we're first met with him and walked through with him. And Bud Grossman. Uh, even though we only have him for a scene, obviously never changes his tone. He doesn't really laugh at his jokes. He kind of just waits for him, wait for something to happen. And then when something does happen, he just tells him the truth. He's like, hey, I'm not really seeing any money here. It's not really green. The last time that it does happen is when Lewin is playing for his father. Uh, I can't remember his name. But when he's playing The Shoals of Herring, which was brought up before, they didn't sing it, but it was in a, a record that Lewin did as a child. And he's like, you're not supposed to leave your let your crap get out because that's ruins the whole zazz or whatever of entertainment. And that also uh, the camera pushes in again on both the father and the uh, and Lewin. But that one's a little bit more of a like, I feel like every song that is saying there's a connection between Lewin and who he's singing it to, which makes sense because the camera, the camera pushes in on both the characters that are in the scenes. Right now, I do kind of want to take, I do kind of want to step forward from the scene with 500 miles when they sing that on stage, because that does remind me later when Lewin and Jean have a, have a discussion. It's in the coffee shop. Um, they have a discussion and she calls him out. She, cause you know, she's, he says, Hey, can you bring my stuff? You know, um, she calls him out and she's like, I think you like doing this. Like, I think you like hopping around from people that you know, saying that their places, um, for, you know, a couple of nights a week, then moving on. Right. So that's in a nutshell. That's kind of what she says. She calls him out for even for complaining about all of this, but deep down, he kind of likes it. Right. And so 
I think that's kind of where she, why that glance happens when they're singing 500 miles is that line, you know, is kind of the saying somewhat of the same thing, right? He, he kind of likes where he's at, even if he doesn't want to admit it, right? He, even though he doesn't have a place to necessarily call, this is my home, um, he does have other places that he know people that he knows. And as we, as we kind of mentioned a second ago, the layout is roughly the same throughout all of these places. He always usually sleeps on a couch with the window at the end, at one end of the couch, right? With the lamp and a coffee table between them, right? So it's, I mean, it's a basic layout, but they're all relatively the same. There's not too much variance. I think it's aside from the Goldfine's house where he's sleeping in a bed, but still, you know, within the vicinity of a window, if I'm not mistaken. At the end, though, when he wakes up in his nephew's bed, if I do believe, that's a totally different layout. Yeah. The window is at where his feet are, and there are the lamps on the other side of the bed. So it actually goes lamp, bed, and then windows kind of around the corner. So that's the only difference. It's because he after, it's that, it's that circle structure. It's that after he comes back home, it's the circle structure that the ending, he's different from where he began, even though he's ending up in the same place. Right. So, okay, I mean, we mentioned 500 miles. Tommy, you talked about it. You said that this is, I mean, this is one of not just your favorite songs, but one of just our family's favorite songs in general. Uh, I guess it should also be stated that while, of course, 500 Miles is one that we all really like to sing a lot, uh, there are plenty of songs on this soundtrack that we listen to quite often. Um, Old Triangle is one that uh, us three and then one of our other cousins and Tommy's brother, we've sang, we've actually recorded before. Um, we've done, we've sang, oh, what's the other one? We know we like uh, Queen. Well. Fairly well, that's the one. That's the one that we like a lot too. So this soundtrack is one that I feel is almost is what I would consider to be almost a perfect soundtrack for the movie that it's placed in because it has some great folk songs in it. Some that feel I think all these are like original recordings for uh, the movie, not necessarily the original songs for the movie. Like Five Hundred Miles is an old folk song, but the songs I believe are recorded originally for this film. Like they're like they're mostly acoustic. Um, for the most part. Um, but what I'm saying is the recordings here in this film are all original. And like you said, with that recording that we all did, and now you can cut this entire part out if you disagree and don't want us to use it. But if the listeners want to like, and stick around for the, after the show, you should put that recording on there so they can hear us all, you know, butcher it. <laughs> I might, I might just do that. I might just put it in as an Easter egg at the end. Yeah. Because the, uh, the recording, that we do compared to the recording that the, uh, the four, the four guys, um, or as Lowen puts it, the four minks, uh, right. Um, (laughs) we do not do it nearly as well. We do not have the near perfect pitch that those guys do, but we gave it our all. We have heart and we liked it. And if we do put that in as an Easter egg, I really hope you guys enjoy that. So, yes, so I would say it is no surprise that the film based around music um, and folk songs, original folk songs, especially how, of course, and done by, of course, you know, those who have done this for a while and are very well respected in in Hollywood, that the music in this film is very, very good. Um, That's almost an understatement because some of these recordings sound amazing. So. Aside from 500 Miles, 
what do you think is the song that has probably the most impact to our character within inside with inside Lewin Davis? I'd like to say hang me oh hang me. Okay. So the that's, song that we open on. That's the song that we opened on. Uh and if I'm not mistaken, that's the one that he and his late partner duet, right? Um, I could well, be wrong. They, they both did it, remember? Right. Was that Oh Poppy, Hang Me, Oh Hang Me? I thought that well, was... Well, Poppy mentioned it both times at the beginning at the end. That That's the one of the songs that you and Mikey used to do. Well, he does sing two songs, right? He sings two songs at the end. Right. He well, only yeah, sang one song at the beginning. Okay. I guess when I say beginning and the end, I'm talking to the, about the same thing. Fair enough. Because they are the same, technically the same scene. Well, then I guess we can't really answer that question. Which song, well, some, what song was it that he sang with well, Mikey? Sang, was it both? Yeah, he sang both. Um, isn't that the song that he sang at the dinner party though? That um, that, that Mrs. wasn't Gorefine. Oh, that wasn't oh, hang me, oh hang me. That was, that was well. fairly well. That was fairly well. Oh, that's right. But he does sing that's both right. of those. Um, in the in that uh, gaslight scene, right? Because the one that he sings with Mrs. Gorefine, uh, well, that he sings and Mrs. Gorefine jumps in, you know, unknowing that he's going to snap like he does, like that must have so much emotional value to him because he can't have anybody else singing his late partner's part. Like that's, that's crucial that nobody interrupts him in that. And so there's gotta be a huge connection there. So that's, that's one I think probably holds the most emotional connection to him. Yeah, I would agree. Andrew, do you agree with that? Or do you have something different? To say? No, yeah, I agree with it because we don't get it. It's the way I see it is the Coen brothers obviously know what they're doing when they're making a film. Right. So at the beginning, if they wanted hang me, Oh, hang me to be the more, influential song to our main character than they would have put that at the dinner scene but they didn't they put fair fairly well at the dinner scene that's the way i see it that's why um uh, there's some color stuff that i have questions about but yeah. that'll come later it's okay we'll get there don't worry uh okay so you mentioned the partner tommy and we've talked about we've briefly mentioned it before uh so the partner mike um before the story begins i believe it's a couple years before the story begins he uh, he commits suicide by jumping off of the George Washington Bridge, right? Um, I said last night when we were all talking, um, I said that I see Mike somewhat as a warning sign for Lewin, right? As we meet, when we meet Lewin, he is not very happy with where he's at. It's very clear that he's not very happy with where he's at either. Um, so I would say that maybe Mike, you know, Maybe Mike, it was the same way. He didn't like where he was. And Lewin, he makes an album. Album's not doing good at all. He tries to get money out of it, but he can't because, again, it's not doing it's not doing good. And so I would say that maybe Mike is a warning sign for our main character that if our if Lewin doesn't find where his passion really lies, which may be in folk music, if he, you know, if he can get to a point where he feels that maybe he can realize that, he might maybe go down the same path as his late partner. And so, yeah, and you can see the emotion like at the dinner party that his connection to Mike and his partner. So, you know, leading him to snap at Mrs. Gorefine. Um, but let's rewind a few scenes back to where Lewin is at, you know, on the train platform and he learns of a gig that a guy had to drop out of. And um, Jim or Justin Timberlake, it, you know, he's, he's going to be recording with uh, Al... Al Cody. Al, Al Cody. That's right. I keep saying Al Gore in my head. And that's <laughs> different guy. Different guy. <laughs> completely different, wrong guy. Okay. But Al Cody, he's recording with Al Cody um, and they, they want Lewin. And so that's, that's big for Lewin. So let's, 
Let's go to that scene because that's uh, please, Mr. Kennedy. Yes, that is that is a huge moment of comedic relief in this film because everything goes wrong for uh, Lou and you see it continuously piling on his plate. All like the just most unfortunate things that can happen just happen to him. And this is just the comedic relief of weird things that happen to him. Right. Yeah. It's it's very funny because uh, yeah, he finally gets something right. He gets some kind of a recording for a song with Justin, with Jim and a new guy, Al Cody. And when we first meet Al Cody, what the first thing he said, <laughs> the first thing he says is shoot. And it's, it's his, his character is so funny because for the, the first few lines that he has is like, just like sounds that he makes during the song of please, Mr. Kennedy, like shoot. Yeah. He's just practicing his part, but he is, he doesn't care that like he's disrupting like Lewin and uh, Jim because they're Lewin has no idea like this song. This is like such a last minute thing. And you know, he's with Jim and he's trying to learn and Jim's like, Hey, do this part, the please. And, and Lewin is trying to practice it. He's like, okay, he's just, he was just, he was just really happy to be there. And finally at a gig where he could be recording and while, while he's like kind of struggling to get the part down and whatnot, you just hear shoot space and stuff like <laughs> and just stuff like that and and let me tell you right now as a musician myself when i'm in when i'm in different like gigs where i'm happy to have been called and being in there you you do whatever you're given you and you you show what lewin shows and like that like that happiness to be there and that cooperation i could see it on his face i could see like his perseverance and like this song is stupid because he did. And he like knocked the song right in front of Jim. He's like, who'd even wrote this song? And Jim's like, I did. And then immediately like, like the, the producers and in, in the, in the sound room were like, all right, you guys ready to go? Like completely making it awkward. All while that's happening. You just hear shoot and like continue. And Adam driver is my second favorite actor. Uh, my second favorite uh, supporting actor, my the side actor apart from Oscar Isaacs, of course, but man, he is so funny in the scene because this is the second film I had seen him in off after uh, star Wars as Kylo Ren. Um, so I didn't exactly know what he was capable of because I just knew him as Kylo Ren at first. I didn't see him in anything else until I saw this and him playing this, uh, this already pretty successful musician, Al Cody, um, I got to see him in a new light and it brought up my respect for him on a, on a comedic side of his acting. I loved it. Yeah. Now, Adam Driver on the podcast isn't exactly a new name. We've talked about him. Um, well, we briefly talked about him when we talked about Mary's Story during the Oscars last year. And we also talked about him, about him during uh, a recording for Patterson, which I know is a movie that Andrew and I absolutely love. Um, so yes, I was surprised too, because when, you know, of course, when Star Wars came out and Kylo Ren being the main antagonist of the, of that story of Force Awakens, I had never heard of Adam Driver until after I watched Force Awakens and I got to see Patterson and then I was like, whoa, this actor is like, I've, how, how have I not heard of him? Right. So yeah, I guess we can also take that and say that this movie also is really funny. So despite the fact that, you know, it's kind of depressing for our character of Lewin um, trying to find his way in the music world, it's also it's also really funny because once he goes, once he gets the trip to Chicago, he meets what is his name? Um, Mr. Mr. Turner. Yeah, he meets Mr. Mr. Turner, Mr. Turner and Johnny Five. And this is my ballet. Johnny Five. Johnny Johnny Five. Five. 
<laughs> yeah. So, it, so it, I mean, so despite the movie being, again, depressing, it's surprisingly got a lot of funny moments in it that kind of lighten the weight of, of Lewin because his character, again, is pretty, de- is pretty depressed. Um, so it, I would say that despite that, you know, this movie is ridiculously funny in a few scenes, especially with Al Cody and then later on with Mr. Turner and Johnny Five. Yeah, one of the things that I um, noticed a lot in this movie is there are two different types of lighting, soft light and hard light. Soft light is super heavily used throughout this whole film. If most of the light that you're going to notice is soft, diffused, and it's not going to be super harsh. There are a couple of parts where there is harsh light on people's faces, Bud Grossman, for example, and then a couple of other scenes. Um, at the end, there's a little bit uh, thrown onto Lewin's face that is harsh light, but it's not like super harsh light. Um, so walking into this, um, into Columbia Records, it's super bright when we meet the lady at the desk and he's like, Hey, I'm here to blah, blah, blah. That room is super bright. But then when he looks down the hallway where the producer is come, where the producer is coming into, that's a dark hallway. (laughs) And so it's kind of like, he, yeah, you're here for, um, a recording session, but it's not going to be something that you would expect. So it's another, I guess it's not like a, a baggage thing for Lewin that he has to do this. He's still going to get money. It's just something that I noticed that they use soft light so much in this film. Yeah. So, okay, Andrew, let's get into color. Yeah. I know you've all, I know you've been waiting to talk about this since we're on, since you brought up lighting, we might as well hop into color as well. Uh, We talked last night and we mentioned a lot of things about color. You especially were talking a lot about color. Um, So give us a little bit of your thoughts on how they color grade this movie. Yeah, welcome to the film of Lewin Davis where there are no colors really. Um the the color or the color scheme in this is very muted. Uh there's not a lot of bright colors, there's not a lot of popping really. There are a few instances, but most of this is I don't want to say grays. There is something there. It's like very unsaturated tan. So there's a lot of tan, a lot of darker colors, there's blue. There are a couple of um there's brown, a lot of brown, a lot of muddled brown. Um, but there is a couple of colors that pop. There is, uh, yellow, orange, and red. Now red is not like a red, 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 red. It's a burgundy red. So Jean, for instance, when she's singing 500 miles, she's wearing red. Um, and then Alan talked about this. He made the match that at the end of the, uh, film, Poppy is wearing red as well. So there's a little bit of the connection, even though, uh, the information that's given, Turns out that Poppy and Jean had a little connection as well. Uh, and that's just a little bit of foreshadowing, showing that they're both wearing red. Now, the one the one thing that I like noticing is that the, like I talked before, the cat matches the same color as Lewin's jacket when he's in the car on his way to Chicago. That I feel like the way that the cat is represented in this film, the symbol that the cat represents, and um, having her, it, blend into Lewis's jacket that he i think he wears everywhere even after given uh mel's coat he never wears that coat yeah that's true it's there at the very beginning mel his i i forget I don't, there's probably a name for it but like his record his record guy legacy records yeah he works for he he's under the title of legacy records um he goes in to see if there's anything for him nothing there for him um and mel tries to give him his coat and this is i mean this is still the introduction to our character and he calls him out he's like no this is a bluff and and mel was like a bluff. I give you my code and get out of my office. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you're right. He doesn't ever wear that coat. I mean, Mo does also give him 40 bucks. So, 
did he ever take Mel's code or whatever? I guess it doesn't necessarily completely matter, but either way. Well, it is brought up again because I I can't remember if this happened before or after, but he goes after the cat and he comes back up to Jean's apartment and she's like a freaking cat. And he, he was just outside. He's like, I don't have a coat. It's freezing. Can I come in and whatnot? I don't know if this happens after he goes to Legacy Records or not, but it's like when oh, that's when yeah, it's after Ray Legacy Records, but that's when the is cat, that after the that's after escapes. where he goes back and uh, Mel's at a funeral, isn't it? Yeah, 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 that's right. Okay, Andrew, continue with it. You can continue with anyways. Colors. colors. So one of the so yeah, like I said before, everything's muted. There are colors, but they're not saturated. So it's more or less putting us into the mind of Lewin Davis, where his life is, like we said before, is kind of just the same old, same old. He's trying to get out of whatever life he's in and music. He's trying to like push himself. So that's why he goes to Chicago. And even when we're in Chicago, there's still muted colors. Ada Horn is a little bit less um, muted on the outside. I think it's red and blue. Yes, sure. We'll say it. I think it's red and blue on the outside, but once we get inside, we're back to that soft light and harsh light thing again. And there's really not much color in there as well. It's about the color really puts us in an environment in this in in Lewis's mind where it's yeah, he's I guess not really depressed, but more or less not really excited about life either. It's the mundane. It's it's his own mundane, if we can say that. So it's this own repeating process. Um but one of the things that I'm very curious about and i don't think there really needs to be an answer but i really like bringing this up um troy when he's eating cereal he has an orange bowl and that's the only thing in the whole room that pops is that orange bowl i mean it's like not it's brighter than the rest of the colors in the room but i don't know if it means anything i just like looking at it and then he also says now though it's very good and then he puts the bowl and then he puts the bowl on the he doesn't put the bowl in the sink he puts the bowl on the shelf next to him and it stays there for the rest of the, well, the two more shots that we have in that room. Yeah. So I would say that the, definitely what you said, the color of this movie is playing within the mind of Lewin himself. I mean, the movie is called Inside Lewin Davis to begin with. So it's very possible that some of the things that do happen in the story are some of the things, are just things that are made up in his mind, right? The it's t- his perception. The title gives it away. Yeah. His, the percep- his, it's his perception of the world that he's living in, right? And it's also his perception and the things that he does um, that kind of land him in situations that are kind of really funny. Um, as we mentioned, this movie is very funny. He, I, I think a perfect example of this is when he goes, he finally heads to Chicago and he's in the car and that whole car ride with those two is absolutely hysterical because it's just so wacky, right? You know, fine, ending up in this kind of a situation, right? So obviously in St. Louis Davis, it, it, it's, it's kind of exploring the inner mind of a music performer who's wanting to try and make it in a world where it's just not happening for him, right? After some things have already gone wrong with his partner and he's trying to do off on his own, things are just not going good for him. And you see that, like he's told multiple times, um, even by Bud Grossman, um, he said, you had a partner? And he said, yeah, I did. He's like, do yourself a favor, get back with him. Even though he had no idea that his partner had killed himself, you know? Um, It's just the solo act doesn't work for Lewin and it never does to this entire film. Right. And maybe we can say that um, that Lewin is looking for some kind of a partner. And that could also be maybe go have some credence to the cat. Right. Lewin does 
kind of, I would say, favor the cat, whether it be the Gold Finds cat or some random cat that looks like the Gold Finds cat, right? And even when he does hit the cat later on after he's coming back from Chicago, he does stop the car immediately and go and check and sees that the cat is hobbling away, right? So maybe he has some kind of connection to a cat. So maybe it's not necessarily that he's going to become a cat person, but more to the fact that maybe if Lewin had a partner, um, maybe life would be going better for him because that party would be able to help him out with some stuff like this. I think there's different ways you can look at look at um, that, like you know, uh, Bud Grossman saying get you know get back together with your partner or the cat or whatever. Well, and we can see that too. We, um, we I can back that up, especially with Akron, the town. That's right. Yeah, when he's we coming were, back we, from uh, Chicago, we can, yeah. we'll have to backtrack as to what Akron means to Lewin, right? Um, because let's let's go back to uh, uh, Jean and him in the park talking about the pregnancy and how she has to get it aborted, worried that it might be Jim's, worried that it might be Lewin's, and she will never know because if it is Lewin, she can't tell Jim because Jim will, Jim will know, and she doesn't want to lose that relationship. If it is Jim's, she and she can't know. Um, it will be Lewin's and she doesn't want to unleash that into the world. Apparently like it's just, she's so she's, she's going to have to like kill a perfectly good baby. And it's, it's just disgusting, but it it is what is what it is. So he, he has to pay for the abortion and, um, that's what the gig with Al Cody and, uh, Jim does it. It gives him $200 right up front for performing that. Uh, he doesn't get any royalties because he doesn't have an address, I believe. Yeah, or there's something. There's something else, and I feel like I should know that as a as a uh, musician myself. But um, I remember specifically, there's no real address to uh, get his royalty check sent to. So he gets two hundred dollars up front. He can cash it, and then he goes to pay for the abortion at the clinic. He goes in, and we learn there that um, apparently he's been there before with a with another woman, Diane, I believe her name was. Yes, he's in there with uh, with the doctor, and he's talking to him like, "Hey, I have the money to pay for um, Jean's abortion and whatnot." And he says, "Oh, don't worry about it. I'll just cover. I'll, it's it's covered already from the last time you were here." And and you you learn, uh, Lewin's like, "Last time? What do you, what do you mean?" He's, he's like, "Diane didn't tell you. She never went through with it." And he's like, she didn't tell you. He's like, no, no, he, no, she did not. So he learns that he has a two-year-old child uh, with Diane. And you, we never meet Diane, right? We never see her. Like it's brought up there, and then the moment when he's driving home from Chicago uh, to go back to New York, and uh, it's uh, as he's right before he hits the cat, he sees the sign for Akron, and he thinks he sees the lights and the distancing. Should I go? Should I? And he misses the exit and he keeps going. He never goes back to it. But you briefly see that and that can fall under that category we're talking about with that, like that lifelong partner. Are we looking for that other person to be with in life? Right. And maybe it's a little bit more general than just like a lifelong like person to be a partner with, right? Maybe it's also finding, again, finding love and passion in something that you're doing, right? Um, which as we noted, he is a musician, but he clearly is not having a very good time with it. So maybe... It's something to the effect of finding a love for the music that he's also doing. So like Alan was saying, um, there are a lot of instances in this film where things are kind of repeated, where he could be looking for that lifelong partner, which could be music, could be a woman, who knows. So one of the things that are repeated is all the places that he crashes at, all the rooms are the exact same layout that he sleeps in. So there's the couch, there's the window, and then there's the lamp. And then another one is um, twice this happens when he's feeding the cat. Um, he pours himself a plate of milk and then 
he sets it down for the cat to drink. But the cat in those two instances are two different cats. So one is the Gorfines, the other one is the other one that he picked up. And then there also is the gene lookalike. So we have our original gene, but when they go to the restaurant that's looking over the highway on his way to Chicago, the girl behind the counter also looks kind of like Gene. Dark hair, has bangs. Then um, when we come back to the gore finds at the end of the film, there is a couple there that looks like the exact same couple that we had before when we had the whole dinner scene. But they're a little bit different. The girl is now um, much older, I believe. And they're a much older couple. But there isn't the uh, professor or whatever. But that's another copycat. And then Lewin also gets two women pregnant. So there's like copycats here and there. There's repeated, there's repeated things. And so I think that repetition kind of also is just kind of thrown in there along with the whole circle story way of telling it. Right. All right. So let's go ahead and get to it. Uh, Lewin's decision to go to Chicago, right? Um, I saw it as, you know, so many bad things have happened in New York, especially in this, especially in the last few days. Um, finding out new information, you know, that when he's given the opportunity to go to, to go to Chicago, he takes it and he goes to Chicago with everything that he has, which already isn't much to hopefully find himself uh, a gig there in Chicago. That's how I read it. So it's uh, it's a definite change in pace because the film slowly fades out to black as he falls asleep in Al Cody's place, I believe. And then it fades in and he's waiting for a car that's pulling up in the rain um, to take him to Chicago with Johnny Five and Mr. Turner. Um, and from here, this is where the film changes drastically. So that's how I saw it was, you know, his kind of a moment or a, a way for him to escape um, the place that he's in currently when he's in New York. Did you guys see it as something different or do we all agree on that? No, I agree on that. Okay. Yeah, I agree on that too. So like I said, that's that's kind of the the midpoint in the story, right? That's when things change. Um, now he's with Mr. Turner and Johnny Five. And we find out while on the trip to Chicago um, that Mr. Turner is, I guess, doing drugs whenever they stop to at the rest stops. Um, and at one point, they eventually get pulled over by the police, leaving uh, Lewin in the car with no ignition key. Yeah, and you see uh, Roland Turner, he, he's a... It's John Goodman. I'm, I'm sure everybody knows what John Goodman looks like. He he's this. I, I'm I'm guessing a jazz pianist. That's what I want to say because he's he brings up in conversation like uh, uh, his uh, his jazz knowledge and then how um, how folk music isn't exactly in his in his range or in his interest range, he says like, can't imagine playing Jimmy crack corn every night or something like that. But this man yet, like, like Alan said, he does pretty much drugs every rest stop. And, uh, he has two canes that he has to walk with. And, you know, he just kind of hobbles his way to little, little gas stops at the, that they're, they pull up to. And he's just, he's just, he's an unbearable character, he, but he plays it so freaking well. I say that he kills this part, and his writing uh, for this character is absolutely genius as well. Absolutely. So it's it's kind of a he's kind of a funny character because he's as we've noted a second ago, he's a very it's a very weird situation that uh, that Lewin finds himself in, right? Um, and the character of um, of Mister Turner, 
is a very interesting one, even at that, because like you said, he's a he's a jazz pianist, but he always has a story for everything, even if it's, you know, not a story that Lewin necessarily wants really cares to hear. Right. Um, he's doing drugs. He's going to I forget exactly what the reason is he's going to Chicago. Um, but either way, he's on the way to Chicago for something. I believe he's gigging out there. OK, that's what it is. Yeah. So he's going to Chicago with a guy who's going to gig in Chicago. Um, they're both musicians. Do you think that maybe Roland Turner could also be seen as another like a warning sign for uh, for Lewin? He definitely could. And he could also be kind of like an intimidation. And he doesn't really give Lewin much of a time to talk. It's, it's, it's about him and his ideas and his opinions. And it's kind of like, don't get in the way because he's a freight train with what he has to say. Because uh, I don't know if you're ready to move on to this point, but like when he's talking while Lewin's driving and Johnny Five is asleep in the passenger seat and he's in the back, starts going off like, uh, do you have a, you have a, you have a partner is like, or what, what's with the cat? Um, is that like part of your act? You know, you play a C and that thing pukes up a hairball or whatnot. And uh, Lewin's like, no. And he said, I once had a partner. He's like, once. And then, uh, yeah, he threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. And you'd think, you'd think the guy would soften up after you learn like, oh, wow, this guy just lost his partner to suicide. No, he's just like, oh, well, the Brooklyn Bridge is the way to do it and whatnot and just cont continuously like drags on like the suicide this really sensitive subject i love the shot with lewin driving as john goodman mocks his late partner to which my favorite line mr turner if you shove that cane up your butt would it go all the way in or would a little bit be sticking out and you just see john goodman as mr turner he kind of just grips his cane closes his eyes lays his head back and he just goes Okay, <laughs> and then just lets Lewin have it as if that one little disrespectful line from Lewin was not okay when it's the most hypocritical part is and that's what makes it so funny because he's, he's going off with the sensitive subject just mocking Lewin and his act and his late partner and when Lewin says one little thing he just he gets insanely offended and that's where the humor of this guy's character comes into. Yeah, the humor is also is very situational and all, kind of funny because of how they crafted around the situation, right? And so the character of Mr. Turner, while, you know, kind of being, you know, always in Lewin's face, always talking to Lewin, saying, this will interest you, you know, as he's trying to tell some kind of story that is maybe barely related to what they were talking about. Uh, they, the Cohen brothers do a very good job at writing humor into some, into situations like that where the humor comes from the weirdness of the situation of a character. So, Andrew, do you have anything to add to the scene? Uh, kind of not really. It's more about, uh, I guess it's a part of the scene, but all the new characters that were introduced to, except for Bud Grossman and his dad, he has the cat with him. So the two characters that he brings along, which are Al Cody and then Roland Turner and Johnny Five, he has the cat with him. So to them, that cat is with him. That's part of him. But even though even though all the other people know that he's not, to those two to those three, technically, it's all a part of who Lewin Davis is. That's why Roland Turnell makes the joke is the cat part of the act too. I feel like to the new the new people that are introduced to Lewin, the cat actually is 
a part of them. So if the cat is like the nine lives or if the cat's whatever we're thinking the cat is, then people can pick that up on them. The new people can pick that up on them. I think that was just something I noticed. And I guess I guess that would be correct because um, he does lose the cat on the way to Chicago. So he never ends up at Bud, with Bud Grossman, right? Or it never ends up around Bud Grossman. Um, maybe if the cat was to symbolize, you know, his uh, his eagerness to find a place called home, the cat's not there, so it's not going to be Chicago, right? You, if if you saw the cat as that going in to see Bud Grossman, you would probably already know that this is not going to work out, anyways, right? So, okay, let's get to the end then, um, um, because after he gets to Chicago, he just finds no, a ride home. Wait, wait, wait. there's oh. there's a, there's a scene. Oh, there is uh, when they're they're at like a. Um, and then like a what looks like an oasis because when they're sitting there at that diner, like there are cars That's like right. driving under them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Turner goes to the bathroom and I'm pretty sure overdoses or just like he disrupts yeah. something in his system, you know, makes him collapse well, on the bathroom he, floor. He does have a tube wrapped around his forearm. That's right. So he definitely right. tried to overdose. Yeah, he definitely. Or at least, tried, at least was doing cocaine. Right. Or something. Well, kind of, before, kind of before oh, Lewin. Heroin is what it would be called. Yeah, that's it. Before we see that scene where Lewin like, you know, it comes in on him. He's he's in the stall. He's in the bathroom stall, follows Mr. Turner into the bathroom, goes to like the far end, and there's writing on the stall door or on the stall wall that says, what are you doing? Right. And uh, I wanted to point that out and I wanted to kind of like talk about that for a second um, and as to why in that moment it's he caught that or he saw that and why it was put in the film. Yeah, I think that that's kind of maybe what he's, what Lewin is asking himself throughout the throughout the series. Like, you know, what am I doing? How did I get myself into this situation? And so what he does going to the bathroom right before he hears uh, Mr. Turner fall over from, from the stall, you know, there is that etched into the bathroom stall. What are you, what are you doing? Right. I, I would say that that's maybe the question of, for, of himself in almost every situation he finds himself in throughout, the, throughout this movie. Right. Because a lot of wacky things happen to this character, especially up until this point, and this is probably the biggest one of them. Finding a getting on a, going on a road trip with two weird characters to Chicago. You know, what is he doing? How did he get in this situation? I think that's maybe what it's asking is maybe for the life of a musician, for somebody like Lewin who's trying to find his way in life, you know, and isn't and isn't exactly happy with where he's at. He finds himself in these really really weird situations. Right? How in the world did he get into them? I think maybe that's what it's asking. Also, I think I could be wrong, but I think the car that they drive in on the way to Chicago and the bathroom are the exact same color. Very well, I think you're right. Uh, it's the bathroom is teal. It's like a mint. Yeah, I think, or at least the way it's presented in the movie, it's more of a minty, not yeah. really teal. And then the car is also kind of not as the car is more teal, I think, than the mint bathroom. But I just saw those like it's like question like what do you what are you doing? But then he's distracted once again before he can. I guess, contemplate it or answer it. Right. All right. So do we want to move on to the end then? Oh, yeah. well, we can talk about the, the dad scene um, um, because he does go to visit his dad and his dad is kind of inebriated in a hospital, like a, a, a retirement home. And he plays a song for him. Oh, it's uh, the short. That's it. Shows of Herring. Um, and he says, you know, you used to like this one, dad. And when he finishes the song, he looks at his dad and he goes, really? And come to find out the dad had soiled himself while listening to his son play him um, a song. Um, when he was believing, when Noon believes he was going to be hopping on a ship soon and chipping out um, as a Marine again. So, I mean, it, it kind of, I would say, I'd see it as, you know, it's asking the question, you know, or maybe bringing up, is all this just a joke, 
right? Is all this music playing and whatnot and learning how to play an instrument and performing, is it all a joke, right? That's kind of how I saw it. That could be one thing, but I like uh, the way that he was playing the song again, it pushes in on both, um, like it's trying to become this moment between the father and son where it pushes in on, I think it pushes in on Lewin. I can't remember, but I know it pushes in on the dad and the dad looks at the window, you know, like he's contemplating everything that his son is doing right now in the moment. And then, and then he looks back and that scene happens or that shot happens. We're like, really? And then really, and then the second really, when he notices that his dad has beat his pants, the camera's back out like as a cut. Right. I think, I think also, and when it comes to family too, uh, even his, it's his sister, right? The, when he goes, yeah, it's his sister. Joy. Yeah. He, uh, she also is not exactly happy that he's, that this, this is what his life is, right? He's a musician. Right. She kind of ex expresses that a couple of times that, uh, you know, you could she's she's the one who even suggests you could, you know, kind of go back and start doing maybe go out and start fishing on a boat or something like that, which kind of maybe even gives him the idea to hop back into the Marines or whatever. Um, his family doesn't seem to be very they're not very supportive of his drive to be a musician. Right. That's, that's how I saw it is dad is, you know, that doesn't really seem to be paying too much attention to him, really seem to care when he goes and visits him, well, with, joy the same way. With him talking to, or singing to his dad, I almost saw that as like a music therapy moment. Maybe, yeah. And we, it's hard to tell because the dad's face is so stern the entire time and angry. He doesn't say anything ever. He looks out the window, yeah, but he also closes his eyes and it, it could be seen as like an annoyed, like, I can't believe he's doing this with his life. But at the same time, it's like, uh, this is a song that I resonate with. Right. And like Lewin says, like this was one of your favorites and whatnot. That could definitely be one of those moments. But yeah, when you, I'm bringing it back to the whole family aspect of what they think about it, they don't seem very confident in his abilities either. Yeah, they they seem to think that mu that his life as a music musician is one that doesn't have a whole lot of grounding potential maybe for him. Like it's not, like, it's not a steady career, right? It's something that you have to, you have to um, always constantly be pushing to do better, do better, to try and make as much money, if not more money, right? It's not a steady career, right? It's not secure. Also, another thing is uh, in the music business, nobody knows who he is except for the slick few. But when he goes to the, the fishing merchants, they all know him as Hugh Davis's kid. They're like, hey, you Hugh Davis's kid? And he goes, yeah, actually, he's been asking about you and stuff like that. So it's like he's never even been around. Well, obviously, he has at one point. But it, that they're now asking, hey, are you Hugh Davis's kid? But nobody nobody asked about his past or even knew who he's related to in the music scene. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Um, let's, move, okay, let's go ahead and move on to the end. Uh, same scene plays out, right? Uh, well, almost same scene. There's a lady who gets up to play. I think it's a harp accord or something like that it's I, what kind the thing of thing she's the thing she's holding yeah oh what is boy it? You, yeah. if you know what it is i have no I, I have no clue it is some old english looking music major okay yeah but even i don't know every single instrument made by the <laughs> <laughs> i either either way uh the instrument that she has she's singing a really old old time folk song and lou and nick's fun of her um, gets gets kicked out of the gaslight. And this is after he finds out that Jean also slept with Poppy. Um, was that because she wanted to get, get Lou in a spot? 
It's because she was getting a gig. Okay. She said, if you want to play at the Gaslight, you got to... Well, I guess we're not told. Yeah. That's true. I guess, yeah, this mentioned, I guess we should bring this up too. This movie doesn't like to answer a lot of questions, right? It, it brings up a lot of stuff, but it leaves a lot of things open-ended. Um, partially because, you know, as the Coen brothers were scared of, like you said, Tommy, um, they didn't really know. It, it was a story without a plot, is what they said. And so they added in the cat to try and, uh, I guess, make it flow a little bit easier. Um, so it could be that it could be that it's something that's just left up to the audience to kind of figure out like, what did they think? Um, why do, why do they think that, you know, Gene slept with, uh, with Poppy or whatever, you know, it could be one of those things. I saw it as, uh, maybe to get Lewin a spot in the gaslight. Cause maybe she knew how much he was struggling. Um, or it could be to have her trio of the gaslight too. And that final scene that he has with her, there is a lot more uh, humanity in yeah, that discussion. She's not, she's not at his throat anymore. No, she was and in it's, the previous ones. it's wild. And he like says at the end, like, I love you, but it's not like, I love you. I need you in my life. It's like, I love you. I care for you. Thank you for having continuously been there for me. And she doesn't say it back, but she, you know, she, she gives that little half smile and then rolls her eyes and says, come on. It's so there's something there. Like there's some humanity in there. And, right. um, that's when like the last like three or four minutes, there's a lot of ups that happens to Lewin. And I start to see, I don't know if you guys notice this. I don't know if it's even a thing. Maybe it's just how I perceived it. It seems like a lot more color comes into, uh, the, the scenes. Well, Andrew, was there, did you see any more color that came into the scenes? I have no then? idea, but it could have been okay. our eyes, uh, adapting to what's going on. Maybe uh, our eyes, our I eyes guess, was yeah. just kind of like letting it happen. No, but we are at a different perspective yeah. in her house. The camera's got that 180 rule, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. And every time that we're in uh, Jim and Jean's house, we get it from one perspective. It's from the side of the window facing towards the rest of the room. But in this shot, we're flipped. Right. So, I mean, the other time we see this is also when he's on the couch sleeping. But this is the one time where we actually can see the rest of the room. That we don't get the rest of the time. Right. So, yeah, I would say, especially in this scene, now that Lewin's been on this big adventure, trying to find a place for himself, he ends up coming back to the place that he began at. That's sort of this whole adventure, right? And so we end with the scene that began the film. Um, he makes fun of the lady before, plays a song, a couple of songs that he and his partner, Mike, used to play together. Um, and then gets beat up by the husband, the lady, right? And the last thing, the last one in the movie is um, he crawls out from the alleyway, sees the man, hop in a taxi and drive off. And he says, au revoir, right? Um, and his face is in harsh light. Right. Also, also that that street that the taxi goes down that he gets picked up in, the only color that's there or is in the neon lights that are on these sides of the building. Right. So like the light, like light, how, how do you say that? The house lights, as you yeah. were, they are, they're blues. There are the tans, the usual white ones. And then there are some red ones. Right. So that's like, that's one of the moments where like the buildings don't have any color, but all the lights that are on the outside of the buildings do actually have more color than we've been shown in the rest of the film. Right. So I kind of saw that. I mean, that's just my own reading of the film. I, I definitely saw that as, you know, from where we began, he's not happy where we ended. He might not be very happy still, but he's learning to find the passion with, you know, being a performer again, even though he still doesn't necessarily have a place to call home, necessarily his home. And I think this is also uh, reinforced with the scene when he goes back to the gold finds, 
um, is with the people that he knows, right? He can't afford a place for himself given his occupation and, and stuff, but he's still able to survive, right? And he's doing what he loves despite um, all the things that have happened in the story. So I kind of saw it as maybe him kind of coming to terms with where he's at in life um, and being a musician and being in this state, right? That's, that's how I saw it is when he gets beat up by that man's, by that, by that man, um, it's more of him just kind of shrugging it off, right? Like this is just a par for the course almost for what he's doing. So that's how I saw it. I don't know if you guys agree or, or what. I agree. I agree. Okay. I also agree. Do we, okay. So do we have anything else to bring up, Andrew or Tom? Do you have anything else you want to bring up before we wrap up? The transitions in this movie. Okay, All right. first a, I, wait a second. Uh, that'll take a second. Let me just say a few of my favorite quotes that we never said. Okay. I just want to bring up these quotes. Go for it. I, I always find the humor in the writing. And uh, first one is after he snaps at Mr. Mrs. Gorefind, she you know runs out of the dining room crying and everybody's just like sitting there awkwardly. What do we do? You hear a scream in the back and she comes back and she's like, this is not our cat. And this is a this is a female. Uh, their cat was a male. She's like, "Where's his scrotum? Where's his scrotum, Lewin?" Like that that one kills me every time. I love that. I love the writing. I love the delivery. The moment leading up to it. I mean, the scenes leading up to it is just incredible. And then after he goes back and he's with his sister and his nephew, uh, his nephew Danny. Uh, and he's learning that. Yep, you guys are already laughing, so you know, so you know exactly which scene. He's he's talking about he needs the license and all that and all the registration stuff that he needs to get in and she threw it out maybe for a reason and you know so he he's cursing she's desperately trying to get him not to curse in front of her kid because it's a house that you know she's trying to bring up to not curse and so you know he continues to do it involuntarily just because he's so prone to it and so he looks at his nephew who's eating breakfast there at the table and he just says Danny your uncle's a bad man and Danny just says okay <laughs> and that's all it is and I I love that delivery it's yeah. just and it's so perfect there's nothing else added to it that's it yeah I love it like I said this movie is hilarious uh almost all of the like ever all of the deliveries are almost perfect and it's funny because it's not like you know they're necessarily waiting for the audience to laugh it's just like it's almost natural for it to be this way also Troy when he finished his bowl is here he goes well that was very good. Yes, that's right. Yes. And right. again, Adam Driver, like if we're just if we're just talking about <laughs> the comedic relief, there's a moment where he he's trying to uh crash at um Al Cody's there it is, Al Cody's place. He has the cat in his arms, he's talking to him, and the cat meows by act I don't know if that's part was part of the script. It's kind of hard to put that into a script and have it play exactly. So I'm gonna say that that was probably unscripted. Adam Driver was ready though, because the cat meows as they're talking, and and as as Al Cody's talking to Oscar Eyes to Lewin Davis, excuse me, cat meows. And he goes and meow, just meows right back at it, and <laughs> continues with what he's saying, and nobody breaks. It's perfect. I love that. Dude. Yeah, yeah. All right, Andrew, do you have anything else? Yeah, the transition is in this film. That's right. Yes, yeah, trans transition. I don't know why we wanted the quotes. It's more of a highlight. Anyways. So at the beginning half of this film, uh, the transpositions are all by transportation. So we have multiple trains, we have cars and all that jazzy stuff. And then the later half of the film, it's all either fade to blacks 
or and it's mostly fade the blacks and then fade up from black. So it's fade to black when he's getting picked up by Johnny Five. It's a fade to black when he is after he hits the cat and wakes up in his nephew's bed. And then that's it. Does it fade to black at the end or cut? It's a cut. Okay. Well, there you go. There's yep. two different types of transitions. Right. All right. Well, are anything else before we go into final thoughts and ratings? All right. So, Tommy, I'll have you go first, and then I'll go you, because, Andrew, you haven't exactly done this before. Um, uh, so, I know Tommy has had experience, and then I'll go last, and then we'll close it out. So, Tommy, go ahead. All right. Well, I am a huge fan of movies that incorporate music as its main plot point. Uh, that's why Whiplash is probably my favorite film of all time. And it's just, it resonates with me. I'll just say that. And I, I enjoy seeing people within the same kind of boat as I am. Obviously I'm not depressed like Lewin, but I can see them and I can relate. And so with this, I thoroughly enjoy inside Lewin Davis continuously. I think it's very, what's the word? I don't want to say culturally enriching because that's, that's a, that's a stupid phrase. I think it's very eye-opening. It's, 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 it's good for people to watch something like this and just kind of be uh, introduced to. It, it, it's not harmful whatsoever. I think it's, it, I'll just say it, enriching. So for me personally, I have given this on IMDb a 9 out of 10. Uh, there's just there's something missing that I even after rewatching it again, I still can't figure it out. I'm sure within the years to come, I will figure it out why it's not a perfect movie for me, but it is pretty darn near close. It's my favorite of the Coen brothers right neck and neck with uh, no country for old men, but it's not quite there. not quite there. Um, I mean, no, uh, no country for old men is not quite there. Inside Lewin Davis, I gave a 9 out of 10. I definitely recommend it. All right, Andrew. Yeah, I really do like this film. Uh, I love the Coen Brothers humor. Uh, I think all the Rankin uh, boys do love that type of humor where, yeah, there's a seriousness, but then they don't ruin it exactly. They just kind of give a little heartfelt, just a little bit at the end of all the seriousness. Um, obviously, this one looks a little bit different than all their others that I've noticed. Um, it is more dreary. It is more dreamy. Uh, the colors are muted. It's not so bright and poppy. It's just kind of, um, I guess it kind of works along the lines of meandering because that's why I like this film. There's not like this push that he needs to do something until it kind of is an opportunity handed it to him. So it's kind of like we're just meandering for the first 30 minutes, but like stuff is happening that we are building off of that we can add to the characters that we know of. So I like it because we're meandering and then something happens and then we're kind of back to a meandering, but it's like a different type of meander. It's a meander with a little bit more of a purpose. So I feel like that's really good. They capture the environment of the gaslight so well with their very minimal lighting set that they have and just filling it with smoke. Uh, different, Two different types of smoke, may I add. There is smoke from cigarettes and then there's smoke just to give it that dynamic effect. And I really, really like that gaslight scene every time I get in there. And then obviously, I just, I think it's a really good film. I would love to give it an eight and a half out of 10, I think. Obviously, there are points where it could drag on just a bit, 
just because there's not like there's not anything happening, even though we're having like developments of character and stuff like that. So yeah, I give it an eight out of eight point five out of ten. Really like Coen Brothers. Very good. Yeah, Inside the Wind Davis is a film that I've just kind of fallen in love with since the day that I found it. Um, again, I forget exactly how. I'm sure it was probably just a movie that I knew about that was on IMDb. That was on Prime, and I ended up watching it and fell in love with it that way. Um, I do own this on Blu-ray. I someday I'll probably pick up the uh, the Criterion. I think you have. I bought I it for have you. The Criterion. I bought the Criterion for you. Everyone brought the Criterion for me. Yeah, and I'm, I paid him back. Yeah, I'm and I'm still jealous because it was the only copy they had. Barnes and Noble, wherever I got it from. Um, either way, either way, I do love this movie. This is a movie that I absolutely adore, from its music to its plot to everything. It's kind of a movie that. Like you said, Andrew, it kind of likes to meander, right? But it's a film that I feel it doesn't it doesn't meander for the wrong reasons. It's the complete opposite. It, me, it meanders for the right reasons. It's a it's a week or so in the life of a musician in the '60s trying to make it, right? That's essentially what it is, and the, and you get to add all that Coen Brothers flavor into making it wacky, but at the same time so engaging and so interesting. The path of the adventure that this character goes on, right? So. I, yeah, I love this movie. Like, I think all three of us have all said, you know, we all very much adore this movie, not just because of its music, which you all definitely have, atta- definitely have an attachment to, but also because of its plot. And I guess this is no surprise if you listen to um, the Patterson Review. I do love those kind of, I guess, slice of life kind of movies. This is definitely one of those where it's kind of just like a, like a period of time in a person's life that you're taking a look at, right? Um, I, you, I think this movie does have... Some open ends that you could draw your own conclusions in, but I feel like it's not something that's not so, you know, so conclusionless that it makes the movie more pretentious. I never saw that. Um, so yeah, I love it. I think I'll give it a nine out of ten and definitely recommend from me. So that kind of wraps up uh, you know, inside Lewin Davis. Now, this is not the end of us three. We will be coming back for another review next week, which is going to be you pull it up. Swiss Army Man. Actually, it's Baby Driver. Baby Driver is first, and then Swiss Army Man. After that, though... I will not be here for Swiss Army Man yes. because, yes, I enjoy it, but I do not have as much as Andrew here, so I'm going to let him have that one. Yes. It's a lot of fun. Yes, Andrew and I will be on that podcast. He's seen it before. He loves it. I have yet to see it. Tommy will be not will be absent for that one. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. You, I'll see you two back next week when we review Baby Driver. So... Tommy, Andrew, thank you, thank you for joining me. Thank you. You're welcome. You're with us. Okay. All right. I think we're gonna call it there. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, 
Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Okay, well, let's go ahead and... St- wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead here, you guys. Let's, uh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead and start off. <laughs> no, I'm laughing. I'm biting, I'm, biting, I'm biting down so I can stop laughing. Okay, okay, I'm good. Get closer to if you're going to talk. Howdy. <laughs> of the same breed of cat, right? Like an orange tabby, I believe, is the kind of cat that he has. So... It might. He spilled ice. <laughs> I spilled my drink. Nuts. There are a couple of instances where he takes the milk that's not his because he's scratching at some place and feeds the cat with it. Then there, there also is something, but I forgot about the other thing. Very good, Andrew. Look, you have done well. He got two women pregnant, if that works, too. Yeah. Andrew, this is very awkward. Look, I know. It's not my problem. We can just edit this out later. <laughs> no, I'm posting this in full. Oh, you are? No. <laughs> Let it go on the record that we're just sitting here watching Andrew desperately look through his notes for what he wants to say. I'll find it. Don't you worry. <laughs> I know. I, I, I wrote it down. I wrote down twins. Me and Alan talked about it last night. So it's like, when we do that whole bit again. Do the whole bit again, yeah. Okay. And then another instance. Why did you say that again? For? Well, because I thought I could just like, I thought it would just come on out, and. uh Nope. I have another thing to talk about, but it has enough to do with. All right, whatever. Let me back up. I'll do it again. I'll talk about the pregnant woman. Okay. I think that wasn't it, but I'll work on it. Okay. He's looking for that other half, which could be music. Let me back up. This is dumb. This is dumb start. Now I can't get it anymore. I hate this game. I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting your time. This man is really nervous right Let me now. go. Let me go. Stop talking. <laughs> I'm just trying to get through this thought. Yeah, like Alan was saying, uh, there are a couple of instances where things are repeated throughout the film. Uh, one of them is the... You gotta be freaking kidding me. Let me write it down. Is the exact same. So they have a... Dang it. I'm mad. Why? Because you started when like...
Kind of do. Okay. A hungry feeling came over me stealing, and the mice were squealing in my prison cell to begin the morning. The screwballing, get a bird, a bird boy. And clean up yourself. And the old triangle went jingle, jangle, all along the banks of the Royal Canal. On a fine spring evening, the Lord Clay dreaming. And the seagull squealing high above the wall. Oh, the day was dying, and the wind was sighing as I lay there crying in my prison cell. And the old triangle went jingle, jangle. The leg was sleeping while he lay there weeping for his girl's house. And the old triangle went jingle, jangle. And I wish to God I was with them, that I did dwell. And the old triangle went jingle, jingle. Let's listen to it. All right. Stop the recording. Stop.